So on behalf of the museum, I would like to welcome you to the Getty and this evening's lecture by Professor Bart Ehrman, who is speaking in conjunction with the exhibition, In the Beginning Was the Word, Medieval Gospel Illumination. Bart Ehrman is a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He began his education at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and went on to complete his undergraduate work at Wheaton College in Illinois. He received his Master's in Divinity and a PhD in New Testament Studies from the Princeton Theological Seminary. His research is in the fields of New Testament and early Christianity. He has published widely on the historical Jesus, early Christian Apocrypha, and the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Professor Ehrman's work is well known beyond the scholarly community. Of the 24 books that he has written or edited, four have been on the New York Times bestsellers. Uh, bestseller list. Many of you are no doubt familiar with the books Jesus Interrupted, God's Problem, Misquoting Jesus, and Forged. He has also published on the recently discovered Gospel of Judas. His current book projects include Forgery and Counterforgery in the Early Christian Tradition and How Jesus Became God, From Jewish Preacher to the Lord of All. Professor Ehrman has received numerous awards and grants, including the 2009 J.W. Pope Spirit of Inquiry Teaching Award, the 1993 UNC Undergraduate Student Teaching Award, and the 1994 Philip and Ruth Hedelman Prize for Artistic and Scholarly Achievement. Professor Ehrman's work on the contradictions presented by the Bible and the tendency of the reader to compress the four Gospels into a single cohesive narrative had particular resonance for the current exhibition on medieval Gospel illumination. We are delighted that he has agreed to apply his knowledge of New Testament scholarship to the visual arts in his talk this evening. Please join me in welcoming Professor Bart Ehrman, whose lecture tonight is titled Legends, Fictions, and the Manuscripts that Illustrate Christ's Story. Well, thank you very much for that uh, generous introduction. Uh, I'd like to stress, uh, before I start, that uh, even though I'll be talking about illuminated manuscripts, uh, it's uh, obvious from uh, what Kristen said that I'm not an art historian. Uh, I'm a scholar of the New Testament and early Christianity. Uh, the other thing to say is that I teach in a different part of the universe from the one we are in now. Uh, my world is the heart of the Bible Belt. My students at the University of North Carolina tend to be conservative evangelicals who, as a rule, think that if you, uh, if you don't believe in the Bible, you can't be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you will roast in hell, uh, which means the Bible is very important for these people. Uh, the thing about my students is that most of them believe in the Bible more than they know about it. Uh, in fact, they know very little about the Bible as it turns out. Uh, this comes as a constant surprise to me every year, but it is uh, nonetheless true and uh, becomes clear to me when I teach my introduction to the New Testament class every spring. This class is a large class. Uh, sometimes it's 300 students, sometimes 360 students, and I begin the class by giving them uh, on the first day of class before I've taught them a single thing, I give them a pop quiz. I give them this pop quiz because I'm interested in knowing uh, what do they know about the New Testament, 
and I'm interested in them knowing what do they know about the New Testament. <laughs> it's not a hard quiz. There are 11 questions on it, and I tell my students that if anyone in the class gets eight of these right, I'll buy you dinner at the Armadillo Grill. Last year, I bought one dinner. Uh, they're not hard questions. So I start off, the, fir the first question is, how many books are in the New Testament? Well, now you would think kids who had grown up in church their entire life, been Sunday school, they would know how many books there are, but they don't. It's actually an easy answer, by the way. The answer is 27. Uh, the reason that's an easy answer is because when you think of the New Testament, you think of God, and you, you think of the Christian God, which means you think of the Trinity. And what is 27? 27 is 3 to the third power. 3 times 3 times 3. It's a miracle. <laughs> I then asked them, in what language were these books written? And uh, this is an interesting question to ask because, as it turns out, a lot of my students think that the answer is Hebrew. And I've never quite figured it out, but I think it's because when they watch these shows on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel about Jesus, they're always flashing up Hebrew manuscripts behind them, so they associate Hebrew with Jesus. So, but it turns out uh, Hebrew is not the right answer. Um, usually I have maybe just five or six students who think that the answer is English. <laughs> um, the, the right answer is, is Greek, uh, is the language of, of the New Testament. Uh, as is the language of many of the manuscripts uh, that are in this, this collection. I, I, I mean, I do have to admit, I do throw in a few curveballs because I don't want to buy any dinners. And so, so one of my curveballs is, uh, uh, what, what was the Apostle Paul's last name? <laughs> and invariably, I'll have some students say, of Tarsus, <laughs> uh, which is true enough. Uh, but uh, the, re the reason I have, part of what I do with this quiz is I try to, try to teach them something in the midst of giving them this quiz. And one of the things I'm try I try to teach, I want them to know, is that in the ancient world, most people did not have last names. Uh, and so uh, unless you were one of the upper crust aristocrats in Rome, you, you just didn't have a last name. You just had one name. That's why in the New Testament, all these people have the same name, and you have to identify them some way. So you have all these Marys in the New Testament. So is it Mary of Bethany? Is it Mary the mother of Jesus? Is it Mary Magdalene? Et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I have to teach this to my students is because they naturally assume that Jesus Christ... <laughs> <laughs> Christ is his last name, and so I, you know, I have to tell them that you know it's not not Jesus Christ born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Uh, so. Well, one of the things that my students generally don't know is that the literal interpretation of the Bible, which they think is the only interpretation of the Bible, but in fact, the literal interpretation of the Bible has not always been a central part of the Christian religion. In many times and places over the centuries, it has not been the literal words of the Bible, but the stories behind them that mattered. Moreover, throughout history, many people have not insisted that historical reality matters for spiritual truth. This can be clearly seen in the history of Christian art, a very small snippet of which we'll be seeing tonight. Since I'm not an art historian, I will not be commenting on the details or the artistic features of the various uh, pieces of art that I'll be showing. My purpose in this talk is quite different. 
What is the relationship of the artwork found in medieval and early modern illuminated manuscripts and the legendary accounts of the life of Christ? What's the relationship between those two things? As we will see, the character of the stories that lie behind much of this art is not simply based on the legendary tendencies of later Christian times, although some of it is. Some of it goes all the way back to the legendary impulses of the earliest attested Christian tradition from the New Testament itself. Artists throughout the Middle Ages, in any event, were not concerned with our modern interest in separating what we might call history from what we might call legend. The stories that they knew, uh, stories ab about Jesus, told important truths. And the historicity of these stories in our modern sense was not an issue for many people, most people through the Middle Ages. I'm going to start with some art that illustrates stories that everyone today thinks were legendary. And then I'll move into artistic representations of New Testament accounts, in part to see how these stories about Jesus came into existence in an effort to fill in what was not known about the life of Jesus from the New Testament and to illustrate what was believed to be known, even though this knowledge was legendary. That'll make sense by the time I'm done. So I'm going to begin with uh, an artistic representation of what is known as the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell. This is a, uh, this is a uh, portrayal of the harrowing of hell in a 12th century life of Christ uh, from England which is in the holdings of the Getty Museum, but, uh, but is, is the one piece uh, that I'm showing that is not actually in the exhibit that we will be seeing tonight. Now, uh, in the exhibit that's on, that's on display. So uh, here's, this is Jesus. As you can tell, Jesus has been crucified already. He's got the wounds. He is, uh, he is putting the devil under his feet. And this here uh, is representing the, uh, the, the mouth of Sheol, or the mouth of Hades, uh, in which the dead had been residing. Uh, the dead had been residing in the bosom of Hades. Uh, and so these are the dead people who had died before Jesus, who are now being saved by Jesus after the, uh, after the, uh, after the death of Jesus. Uh, he is able to extend his salvation not only to people who were living at the time that he was alive and not only to people who lived afterwards, his salvation reaches even to those who are already resident in hell. And he is bringing them out of Sheol to give them uh, salvation in, in heaven. So that's, that's what the, uh, the, the picture is about. Let me say a few words about the stories, the legends behind it. The harrowing of hell. Uh, the word harrowing, it refers to this act of Jesus bringing people out of hell and emptying hell of its inhabitants uh, because now salvation is in, uh, it, it has become possible. In the New Testament Gospels, we have, of course, four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that describe the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus in the four accounts is uh, executed by crucifixion on a Friday, 
And on Sunday, on the third day, he then is, uh, he then is raised from the dead. Uh, you find this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His death on Friday, resurrection on Sunday. What the Gospels give no indication of is what the Spirit of Christ was doing during those three days. Jesus' body was in the tomb, but where was his spirit and what was he doing? The other thing that the Gospels do not uh, answer directly was a question that many people had uh, through the ages, especially in the Middle Ages, which had to do with how far does Jesus' salvation reach? What about people who died before Jesus' crucifixion? If Jesus' death is what brings salvation, what about people who died before his death? Is salvation available only to people who believe in Jesus, which would be people who lived after him? What about the unfortunate souls who lived before him? Is the salvation that he brings not efficacious for those people? Uh, and so there are two issues that uh, were in people's minds. Where was he during this time? And what about the people who died before? The resulting legends had to do with what Christ did in the interim period between his death and his resurrection. And it came to be thought that what happened was that Jesus, in fact, descended to hell in order to preach the good news of his salvation there so that his salvation was efficacious not only for those who would live afterwards, but also for those who lived before. Jesus would bring out the saints from the realm of the dead and take them to heaven. Or in some traditions, he brought everybody out from the realms of Sheol uh, into a heavenly existence. The first time that we have an account of this is in a gospel that was very popular through the Middle Ages, even though it was not in the New Testament. It's a gospel called the Gospel of Nicodemus because it was allegedly written by uh, this rabbi who is named in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus. Uh, it wasn't really written by Nicodemus. It was written hundreds of years after Nicodemus uh, had been dead, but it was a book that was forged in the name of Nicodemus. In the Gospel of Nicodemus, we have our first account of, of Jesus descending to Hades to save the people who were there. It's a very interesting account. Uh, what happens is Jesus dies. He's raised from the dead. Uh, the leaders in Jerusalem don't believe he's been raised from the dead, uh, even though people are saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, they, they bring in some people who, uh, who tell them, yes, Jesus has been raised. They still don't believe them. And these people tell them, look, you remember Simeon, the person who recognized Jesus when he was a baby boy? Simeon had two sons who, who died. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, other people were raised with him, including Simeon's two sons, and they're living up north. Go get them, and they'll tell you all about it. And so they go and get Simeon's two sons. They bring him to Jerusalem, bring him in front of the Jewish council, and they ask him, is it true you were dead? Yes, we were dead. Well, what are you doing here? Uh, well, we were raised from the dead. Well, tell us about it. And so they tell the story. They were in Hades, and they heard a loud voice proclaiming that the king had arrived, that the gates were to open up, because the king of the Jews was now ready to enter into the realm of, of Sheol. 
And the uh, prophets from the Old Testament got up and proclaimed that this is the one that they had anticipated as coming to save them. Adam, as in Adam and Eve, got up and gives a little speech about how this is the one that he anticipated. John the Baptist gets up and gives a little speech. And then Jesus arrives and he takes everybody out of Hades and he takes them to the heavenly realm. This is all found in the Gospel of Nicodemus, an account that dates from the 5th Christian century. Medieval artists were quite taken with this idea of Jesus going to the realm of the damned and bringing their, his salvation to them. Uh, it didn't matter to them that this wasn't in the New Testament, and it probably would not have made sense to them if you had told them that, well, it really didn't happen. This was a story that conveyed theological truths to them, conveyed theological truths to them, and it didn't much matter whether it made it into the New Testament or not. And so uh, we have a number of artistic representations then of this harrowing of hell, Jesus bringing salvation to those who are already imprisoned in Sheol. My second piece of art has to do with another legendary account that, every, that just about everybody today agrees is legendary, having to do with the birth of Jesus' mother, Mary. This uh, piece of art is found in an illuminated manuscript uh, that is a collection of masses, uh, Catholic masses, for high feasts. It's a 15th century manuscript, and it is in the uh, exhibit here, uh, here in the Getty. This is the birth, not the birth of Jesus, it's the birth of his mother, uh, the, his mother Mary. Uh, in the scene, this is Anna, who is the saintly mother of Mary, according to legend. You can see she's saintly because she has a halo. Uh, this, uh, this is one of those scenes where you get several scenes going on at different times. Down here is Anna again, this time carrying the baby Mary in her arms with, uh, with a halo also here. And uh, this is an angel who's preparing the bath for, uh, for, for Mary to take. And so this is an account of Anna giving birth with her two attendants here, uh, giving birth to, to Mary. What can we say about the birth of Mary according to early Christian legend? The New Testament is virtually silent about the mother of Jesus. The New Testament tells us almost nothing about Jesus' parents or his family. His parents, of course, are named Mary and Joseph. They're betrothed to be married, but they're, uh, they're not married. When Mary uh, becomes pregnant, uh, and she, of course, is not made pregnant by her betrothed Joseph, but is made, uh, become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so the child that is born of Mary is, is born of a woman who is a virgin. Uh, but we're not told anything about Mary, and people wondered about it. Who exactly was Mary that she was the one who was given the right to bear the Son of God? I mean, what, what was so special about her? Well, this was a very uh, pressing question for people who were interested in the lineage of, of Jesus. And in particular, there were, there were some theological reasons that people were interested in this question. There were debates about whether Jesus really was a human like the rest of us. Now, the rest of us, you may have noted, uh, commit sins. If Jesus was really a human being, 
Did he commit sins? No, he didn't commit sins. Well, how can he be human if he didn't commit sins? Well, he didn't commit sins because he didn't really have a sin nature like the rest of us. Yeah, but the rest of us are born with a sin nature. Yes, but Jesus was born of a, of a virgin. And so he didn't have the sin nature. Yeah, but didn't his mother have a sin nature? Uh, so why didn't she pass on the sin nature to her son? Well, these are the kinds of theological questions people uh, were asking. And unfortunately, the New Testament did not provide answers for these theological questions. And as a result, a number of legends sprang up. The earliest account we have of these legends about Mary is in a book that did not make it into the New Testament, but was exceedingly popular through the Middle Ages, at least as popular as many of the books of the New Testament. It's a book that scholars call the Protevangelium Jacobi. Scholars call it this because uh, when you're a scholar, you much prefer a Latin phrase when you have an English phrase that works perfectly well. <laughs> this shows that you're an educated person. And so you call it the Protevangelium Jacobi uh, instead of what it means, which is the Proto-Gospel of James. Uh, this is called a Proto-Gospel, this, this uh, book, because it deals with the events that transpired, by and large, before the Gospels. The Gospels begin with Joseph and Mary, at least Matthew and Luke do, begin with Joseph and Mary. Well, what happened before these episodes? That's what the Proto-Gospel of James talks about. It's a very interesting book. It probably, uh, probably first came into existence sometime in the second Christian century, maybe a hundred years after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is an account of, uh, of what happened when Mary was born and subsequent events up through, the, up through the birth of Jesus and a few episodes when he was a, a, young, a young boy. So what happened with Mary was this. There was a very wealthy uh, Jewish man named Joachim who uh, was married to a woman named Anna. They were very righteous, very pious before God. Uh, they were also extremely wealthy and uh, well-connected in a high social class. But unfortunately, they were not able to have, uh, to have children. And uh, they were quite upset about this. Uh, and so Joachim decided that he was going to uh, rebel a bit. He left home, went off into the mountains by himself, and for 40 days and 40 nights he fasted, saying he would not eat or drink anything until God appeared to him to answer his prayer. Meanwhile, Anna, back home, is very upset that she cannot conceive a child, and she uh, prays a bitter uh, prayer of lament to God. Why can't she bear a child? God hears her prayer and sends an angelic messenger to let her know that she has, in fact, conceived a child, and uh, this child is miraculously born. Now, it's not that the child is born of a virgin. Anna was not a virgin. Uh, he and, she and her husband had been trying to have babies for a very long time. But it was a miracle like other miracles in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where a barren woman is allowed to conceive by an act of God. Anna vows that when this child is born, she will dedicate this child to God. And so it happens. The child is born, and it's a girl. They name her Mary. Mary is not allowed to play with the other children. Mary is kept in a sanctuary built in her bedroom. Uh, 
uh, so that she has no evil influences upon her. When she's three years old, she's taken to the temple of God in Jerusalem. And she grows up in the temple of God in Jerusalem, fed every night by an angel who comes down and gives her her food. Mary is a very special person who's had no outside influences upon her. When she turns 12 years old, the priests in the temple are nervous because she's about ready to start having her period, and that would uh, pollute the temple, and so they have to figure out some way to take care of her without allowing her to stay in the temple, and they end up uh, deciding that she's going to marry this elderly man, Joseph. And so uh, that is how Joseph and Mary come together. Joseph, there, it's not quite clear why he's an elderly man in this story, uh, except for probably because since she's holy, she's never going to have sex. And since he's an old man, he won't want to. So, uh, so, they, uh, uh, so anyway, but he's an elderly man. That's why in all the artistic representations in the Middle Ages, when you see the birth of Jesus, Joseph is always an old man. That's based on this story that he was an old man. One of the results of him being an old man is that he had sons from a previous marriage. And so in the New Testament, Jesus is said to have brothers. Well, for the proto-gospel of James, these brothers of Jesus are not children of Joseph and Mary, since they never had sex. No, these are the sons of Joseph from a previous marriage, and so they're, they're Jesus' sort of adopted stepbrothers. Uh, in any event, uh, Joseph and Mary uh, then uh, are uh, come together, and Joseph protects her, and she gives birth. It's it's a terrific story, and actually one of the one of the most terrific scenes in the uh, in the Proto Gospel of James is one that's not found uh, in in this particular piece of art I'm showing you. It's uh, what happens is Mary gives birth. And Joseph has gone off to try and find a midwife to help out during the birth process, but he gets there too late. Uh, they, he and the midwife arrive uh, to the cave where Mary is. There's a bright light there, and there's a child who's actually walking around, and uh, it's Jesus who's just been born. And, uh, and uh, Joseph tells the midwife, you know, I... It's not my child. I, I, it's not, and, and she doesn't believe him. She goes off. She finds another midwife named Salome. She says, Salome, you won't believe this. A, a virgin has just given birth. And Salome says, no, I don't believe you. She says, unless I test her virginity, I won't believe it. So she goes back to the cave. And in one of the strangest incidents in all of the gospels of, of any kind whatsoever, Salome gives Mary a postpartum examination. And she... she finds that her hymen is still intact. And so she realizes she really is a virgin. Uh, and for her troubles, her hand starts burning off because God's upset with him, her putting him to the test. And she has to go to the baby child Jesus, lifts him up, and her hand is healed. And that's the end of that story. Well, very strange indeed. Uh, we don't seem to have an artistic representation of that particular incident. <laughs> This then is the birth of, uh, of Mary to Anna, uh, uh, featured in this uh, 15th century manuscript that you can see in the collection. I'm going to move on now to uh, artistic representations of things that are in the New Testament. And my thesis is that these two involve legendary accounts. I'm going to uh, begin by looking at an artistic representation of the seven last words of the dying Jesus. This is a uh, portrayal, obviously, of the crucifixion, uh, in which you've got uh, Jesus 
on the cross. Uh, he has been crucified. He is bleeding from all of the wounds uh, with uh, saints uh, and later folk at the foot of the cross. And in kind of like a cartoons where you get balloons with people saying things, that's what you've got here. You've got seven balloons in which Jesus is saying things. These are the, uh, the so-called seven last words of the dying Jesus. Uh, and so let me talk about what, what, what that means. The seven last words. The historical reality is that we don't know what Jesus said when he was being crucified. Uh, there was nobody there taking notes. Uh, the disciples uh, had almost certainly fled the scene. Uh, we, we have no idea what the historical Jesus said. But people were obviously interested in knowing what Jesus said in his last hours and minutes. And so in the Gospels, we have words put on Jesus' lips by, by later storytellers who are telling the stories about what Jesus said on the cross. The individual Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm just, these seven words come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, these, these individual Gospels record different sayings of Jesus on the cross. So you don't get the seven last words in any one gospel. You get him saying different things in different gospels, and in none of them does he say seven things. The seven sayings are a combination of everything that he says in all four of the gospels. It just happens to be seven, which, of course, in, in the Bible is the perfect number. And so people latched on to the idea that there happened to be seven things that Jesus says on the cross, and these are the seven things. Uh, the, this is in the sequence that is commonly thought that he would have said them. Uh, when he's being nailed to the cross, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In Luke's Gospel, he tells the robber being crucified next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. In the Gospel of John, at the foot of the cross is the beloved disciple John and Jesus' mother Mary. And Jesus from the cross says to John, Behold, uh, to his mother, Behold your son. And he says to John, Behold your mother. In the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John's gospel, he indicates, I thirst. After that, in John's gospel, he proclaims, it is finished. And in the gospel of Luke, right before he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are the seven last words of the dying Jesus when you combine the four gospels into one long account. I want, to, uh, I want to explain why professional interpreters of the Bible have found it problematic, uh, this combining of the different things that Jesus says into the different Gospels into one long narrative of the seven sayings of the dying Jesus. What many, what most, what probably all uh, serious critical scholars of the Bible think is that when you read one of the Gospels, you need to let that gospel say what it has to say and not pretend that it's saying something that another one of the gospels is saying. 
Each of these authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had their, their, own, their own points that they wanted to emphasize. And if you pretend that Matthew is saying the same thing that John is saying, you're importing John into a Gospel that wasn't John. You're making now Matthew sound like John when Matthew isn't John. Matthew is Matthew. It's, it's like today, if I write a book and somebody else writes a book, and somebody says, I'm saying the same thing this other person saying. I might be saying something completely different. And I don't want anybody to interpret my book in light of what somebody else says. So when you read uh, my book, Misquoting Jesus, and then you read, uh, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh, uh, you, know, you, you know, don't confuse me with him. Well, it's the same thing with any author at any time. You should let each author say what they have to say. It's true of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This matters with the last sayings of Jesus, and let me try and illustrate why it matters by looking at two of the Gospels. Uh, it matters at least to professional interpreters uh, of these books. In Mark's Gospel, which is our first Gospel, uh, Jesus, in fact, says very little uh, when he is being crucified. Jesus is condemned to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of uh, of. Judea, and he's taken off to be crucified, and Jesus doesn't say anything on the way to be crucified. They nail him to the cross in Mark's gospel, and he doesn't say anything. He's silent the whole time. It's almost as if he's in shock. He's hanging on the cross, and while he's hanging on the cross, everybody mocks him. The Roman soldiers mock him, the people passing by mock him, and both robbers mock him. And Jesus doesn't say anything until the very end in Mark's gospel. Jesus says the only thing that he says in the crucifixion scene in Mark's gospel, at the very end, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. This is a very powerful portrayal of Jesus going to his death. His disciples have, have fled. One of his disciples has uh, betrayed him. Another one has denied him three times. Nobody is with him at the end. Everybody who sees him makes fun of him and mocks him. And at the end, he feels forsaken of God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. I think it's a genuine question in Mark. Jesus really wants to know why even God has forsaken him. You contrast this portrayal with what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Now, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is also condemned by Pontius Pilate and is taken off to be crucified. But on the way to be crucified in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is not silent. He sees some women by the side of the road who are weeping for him. And he turns to them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the fate that's to befall you. He's more concerned about these women than he is about his own fate. When he's being nailed to the, to the cross in Luke's gospel, he's not silent. Instead, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This does not seem to be somebody who's in shock, who doesn't know what's happening to him. While he's hanging on the, gospel, on the cross in Luke's gospel, Jesus is not silent. Jesus actually has an intelligent conversation with one of the people being crucified with him. 
one of the two people, not both of them as in Mark, one of the two people being crucified with him starts mocking Jesus and the other one tells him to be quiet. And he says, because Jesus has done nothing to deserve this. Then he turns his head to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, knows exactly what's happening to him. He knows why it's happening to him. And he knows what's going to happen to him after it happens to him. He's going to wake up in paradise and this guy's going to be with him. This is not a Jesus who feels forsaken of God at the very end. Most telling of all, instead of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. He knows that he's on the side of the Father and that the Father is on his side and he's doing the will of the Father and he's going to wake up in paradise when this is all over. This is a very different portrayal of Jesus going to his death from what you get in Mark. What people do, of course, is they read Mark and they read Luke and they smash them together into one big gospel. And then you throw in Matthew and then you throw in John and that's how you get the seven last words of the dying Jesus. So I've got two points I wanted to make. One is that, that today critical scholars of the New Testament think that you really should let each gospel speak for itself and not pretend they're all saying the same thing. But my second point is that in the Middle Ages that was not the scholarly common sense. In the Middle Ages it was just the opposite common sense which is that these are all important stories and they can complement one another. They don't stand at odds with one another. They complement one another, so you put them all together and you get the big story. That's the common sense in the Middle Ages and it's often the common sense that people have today, of course, when they read all the Gospels as if they're all saying the same thing. And so that is what I would call the medieval and the modern legendary perspective on the seven last words of the dying Jesus. And so there we are again with it. The next account I want to look at is uh, the genealogy of Jesus, uh, which involves once more uh, what I would call a, uh, a set of uh, not just medieval but modern legends. This is a very uh, interesting piece from the uh, exhibit it's from the Gladzor Gospels, uh, which is an Armenian gospel uh, text. So the writing that you see here is, is Armenian. Um, it's from the 14th century. This is uh, an account of Jesus, uh, of the genealogy of Jesus. So who begat whom, begat whom, begat whom. My, my students uh, think the genealogies are the most boring part of the Bible. And, uh, but you know, when they're taking the New Testament class, I have no sympathy for them at all. You know, I, I tell them, look, G Matthew's genealogy is 16 verses long. It's just 16 verses long. If you want a genealogy, go to 1 Chronicles. Nine chapters <laughs> of who begat whom. So uh, this, and the genealogies in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew and Luke are the two gospels in the New Testament that give genealogies. And they're very interesting genealogies because they actually say you actually can get a lot of very interesting information. Well, this is a genealogy where you have not just the, uh, who the ancestors of Jesus were, but also you have uh, uh, artistic uh, representations of, of, these, uh, of these people. And in another page of the same uh, manuscript that's on the exhibit, 
exhibit. It goes down, they, they're showing the page that goes down, to, uh, goes down to Mary. And so there's a presentation of Jesus' immediate lineage on one of the, the other pages. Let me say a few things about the genealogy of Jesus as another kind of, another kind of legend, this kind of time, a legend that is in the New Testament. The Gospel accounts. The Gospel of Mark does not have a genealogy, probably because it does not have an account of Jesus' birth. Mark's Gospel begins with Jesus as an adult. The same is true with the Gospel of John. It begins with Jesus as an adult. Matthew and Luke, however, are the two Gospels in the New Testament that tell stories about Jesus uh, being born. And so, in both Matthew and Luke, in addition to birth narratives, you also are given genealogies uh, in which you have the, tr the family line of Jesus uh, traced back to, uh, back to his remote ancestors. Uh, just a second, I don't want to get the historical reality. The interesting thing about the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, there are several interesting things. The, the most interesting thing to many modern readers is that the two genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke are different genealogies. They're different. They're different in a lot of ways. Uh, some of the ways don't matter and some do matter. One way that may not matter is that Matthew's genealogy is set up to show that Jesus descended from King David and he descended from Abraham. And so the genealogy begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the uh, Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, who's that? Okay, so David is the greatest king in Jewish history, and it was understood that his descendant would be the future Messiah. And so by saying that Jesus is the son of David, Matthew is indicating that he's the Messiah. But he's also called the son of Abraham. Why Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of the Jews. The Jews trace their lineage back to Abraham. And so... Jesus' genealogy is traced back to Abraham. As many of you know, Matthew's gospel is often thought to be the most Jewish of the gospels. And so it traces Jesus' Jewish lineage. Luke's genealogy, in some ways, is even more interesting because it does trace Jesus back to David and back to Abraham, but that's not the emphasis. Jesus' genealogy in, Matthew's, in Luke's gospel is traced back to Adam, as in Adam and Eve. That's a great genealogy. <laughs> I, I have an aunt who's a genealogist who is very proud about the fact that she's traced my family line back to the Mayflower. The Mayflower? Adam and Eve! <laughs> Serious genealogy. The logic of Adam's genealogy, uh, of Luke's genealogy, is that unlike Ma Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the savior to the Jews, the Jewish Messiah, Luke wants to emphasize that Jesus is the savior of all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so his line is traced back to the first human, to Adam, Adam himself. So that's a difference, but it's not a discrepancy or a contradiction, it's just a difference. The discrepancy is that the family line of Jesus is traced back through Joseph to David in different lines. Now, let me make a couple points about that. First, the genealogies are both genealogies of Joseph. That should strike you as very strange because both Matthew and Luke insist that Jesus was born of a virgin. Joseph was not his father. But the genealogy is the genealogy of Joseph. 
but Jesus doesn't belong to that family line. Well, uh, the Gospels don't give us an answer to that one. I think you have to assume that, that he was uh, adopted by Joseph and so he was sort of adopted into the line, but he's not part of the bloodline, which is the point of a genealogy. Uh, neither, neither of the Gospels trace the line of Mary. They're both tracing Joseph. But what is even more interesting is that there are different genealogies of Joseph. If you look carefully, uh, you don't have to look too carefully, just read what it says. Uh, ask yourself, who is Joseph's father? It depends whether you're reading Matthew or Luke. Who's his grandfather? Different names. Great-grandfather, different names. Different names all the way from Joseph back to King David. In Matthew's genealogy, Joseph descends from David's son Solomon. In Luke's genealogy, he descends from, from David's son Nathan. Different, well, how can that be? Well, it can't be, literally. What's going on here is that both of these authors want to trace the genealogy of Jesus, and the reality is they don't know. I mean, how would they know? People have this mistaken notion that in the ancient world, uh, everybody kept detailed records of these things. People did not keep detailed records of these things. And so Matthew and Luke have had to do the best they could to come up with genealogies of Jesus for purposes of their own. The historical reality is we don't, we don't know who Joseph's father or grandfather or great-grandfather was. Uh, it's, it is a, uh, it's something we simply can't know. Uh, I should add, one of the interesting things about Matthew's genealogy is that it is clearly a constructed genealogy. Matthew goes through the genealogy from Abraham to David, uh, and then he goes from David to the biggest disaster in the history of ancient Israel when they were destroyed by the Babylonians for the Babylonian exile that happened in the 6th century. And then he goes from the Babylonian exile down, down to Jesus. He divides it into thirds. And what he tells you, and it's when you add it up, he points out that there were 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 generations between David and the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations between the Babylonian exile and the Messiah, Jesus. 14, 14, 14. It's almost as if something miraculous is happening every 14 generations in the history of Israel. So that this birth of Jesus, in fact, is almost like it's fulfilling a prophecy or something. It's, it's part of the divine plan. The problem with that is that, well, there's several problems. One problem is that when you actually add up the numbers, the third set of 14 is actually only 13. <laughs> Uh, he, he counted wrong. Uh, so that's a problem. The other problem is that you can compare the genealogy that Matthew gives you with the genealogy that he got it from, from the Old Testament, and he left out a few names in a few places. Why? Because he wanted the number 14. So it would be 14, 14, 14, so it would look like a miracle. It not only looked like a miracle, it, it's, there, there are several theories about this 14 thing. You know, ancient peoples really like numbers. Well, what is, what is 14? Well, it's twice seven. Seven is the perfect number. This is a doubly perfect genealogy. The other interesting thing is that when, uh, when you spell, okay, this is a little complicated. So in, in ancient languages, they didn't use a different alphabetic system from their numerical system the way we do, right? We use Roman, we, we use, uh, Roman letters, but we use Arabic numerals. In ancient languages, they used the letters of the alphabet for their numbers. 
And so, for example, in Hebrew, Aleph, the first letter, is worth one, Beit is worth two, Gimel is worth three, and so on. And so every letter has a numerical value. If you spell the name David in Hebrew and add, a, add it up, remember the, the Messiah is to be the son of David? Spell David in Hebrew and add the letters up, 14, as it turns out. And so the 14, 14, 14 thing in Matthew may be uh, a way of saying this really is the son of David. My point, though, is that it's a constructed genealogy. In other words, it's not something that you can go to the bank on as being historically accurate. It's not historically accurate. People wanted to say that Jesus had certain kinds of uh, lineages, certain genealogical lineage, and they had to make up genealogies in order to pull it off, including the genealogies that ended up making it into the New Testament of Matthew and Luke. So another uh, picture of Jesus' relatives, his ancestors. Finally, this will be my last point uh, about legends involving the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament Gospels themselves. There are several very nice uh, portrayals of the Gospel writers in the, uh, in the exhibit. Uh, this is Matthew. Uh, you can see he is busy writing his Gospel. Uh, since this, uh, this comes from a 17th century Bible, so it's an early modern Bible with its portrayal of Matthew, who is uh, seated on a, uh, on a kind of a throne-like thing, but he's, he's writing, since this thing was done in the 17th century, he's not writing in a scroll the way ancient people tended to write. He's writing in a, in a book. Uh, this is Mark, who has a little uh, book desk on which he can write his, uh, write his gospel. And so far, he's written one word, <laughs> the word uh, arche, the beginning. He's got a ways to go yet. Uh, and uh, this is Luke, who uh, is, again, has a, has a kind of a little writing table that he is uh, using with a stylus uh, in, his, in his hand. And so uh, this is... Both the mark was from a 13th century gospel manuscript. This uh, portrayal of Luke is from a 12th century uh, gospel manuscript. Traditionally, of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were thought to be the authors of the first three gospels. Uh, John uh, thought to be the author of the fourth gospel. These are traditional descriptions. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The uh, Bibles that you read today have the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, in the titles, the Gospel according to Matthew, Gospel according to Mark, etc. You will notice, however, that when you actually read the Gospels, the authors don't identify themselves. The Gospels of the New Testament, in fact, are all anonymous. Uh, they, the authors don't identify themselves. Whoever put the titles in the Gospel, over the Gospels, were later editors. They were not in the original writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were added by editors who wanted you to know who it was who actually wrote these things. The traditional descriptions indicate that two of the writers of the Gospels were actually disciples of Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and John, the beloved disciple of the Gospel of John. And so those two were disciples. Mark was thought to be the secretary for the uh, apostle Peter. So Mark was the secretary for Peter who wrote down what Peter said and then organized it into a gospel. Luke, I'm, I'm not saying how it really was, I'm telling you what the tradition says. Luke was thought to have been the traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Uh, now Luke 
Luke wasn't one of the disciples, and Paul actually wasn't one of the disciples either, but Luke did his homework, and he was an associate of the Apostle Paul, and so he also wrote a gospel. And so that's how you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two disciples and two companions of the apostles. What we actually know about these authors. So it seems unlikely to many critical scholars of the Bible today that these books were actually written by disciples of Jesus, that the two disciples were the writers and that Mark was a writer. of the. In fact, it's unlikely that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were actually written by people named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is pretty clear that the Gospels of the New Testament are not eyewitness reports of what happened in the life of Jesus. These Gospels were not written by the immediate followers of Jesus. One reason for thinking that is because it is almost certain that the immediate followers of Jesus could not write. Today we're used to everybody, basically everybody, 99% of this country is at some level literate. Not everybody. Literacy is still a, it's a big problem. Uh, it's, it's illiteracy is still a big problem. But just about 99% of people can read something. Uh, and can sign their names. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Massive liter liter literacy didn't come about until the Industrial Revolution. In ancient cultures, in fact, most people could not read or write, and far more people could read than could write. There have been estimates about literacy in the ancient world, the most famous of which was made by a scholar at Columbia University named William Harris, who wrote a book called Ancient Literacy. Harris estimates that in the ancient world, at the best of times, maybe 10% of the population could read and write. And by write, he means be able to copy out somebody else's writing. Far fewer than that 10% could compose a sentence. Fewer than that could compose a narrative. Far, far fewer people could compose an entire book. Who were the people who could compose books? The people who were highly literate were the people who were very wealthy. They came from very wealthy families. They were almost always in urban settings who had the leisure and the, uh, and the finances to get a high-level education. That's who could write in the ancient world. There have been studies of literacy in ancient Palestine where Jesus ministered. These estimates indicate that because Palestine was far more rural than many other places in the Roman Empire, there were lower literacy rates. Contrary to what many people think, which is many people think that every Jewish boy went to synagogue school and learned how to read and write, that appears to be a modern myth. Uh, in fact, ancient literacy in Palestine was very low. The best estimates indicate that probably at the time of Jesus, maybe 3% of the population was roughly literate. Far fewer than that could write, uh, especially write books. The other thing to point out is that Jesus' native language and the native language of his followers was Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic. The reason that matters is because of what I said at the very beginning. The New Testament Gospels were written in Greek. They not only survive in Greek, they were originally written in Greek. And not just kind of low-level Greek, they're actually pretty good Greek. 
Whoever wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were highly educated Greek-speaking Christians. These books are normally dated 30, 40, or 50 years after Jesus' death, probably some years after the death of his apostles. I think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written by followers of Jesus or companions of his apostles. They were probably written by unknown persons who decided to write anonymously, and since they wrote anonymously, we don't know their names. But the traditional ascriptions are probably not right. Uh, probably they were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, that's, a, that's a legend. It's a legend that in some sense is rooted in the Bible itself because, of course, in our Bibles today we read the Gospel according to Matthew, but we don't know actually who the author was other than he was a later Christian who was highly educated and was not an Aramaic speaker but a Greek speaker. Still, the tradition goes back to the second century. Within a hundred years of the production of these books, after they had been circulating anonymously for about a hundred years, there are church fathers who say that their names were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they give some of the uh, uh, some of the um, indications, some of the some of the traditional legends about them already in the second Christian century. Uh, by the way, one other piece of evidence that, for example, that Matthew did not write Matthew, apart from the fact that Matthew was an Aramaic-speaking lower-class person from, from Palestine who probably was illiterate, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, there's the calling of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, where Matthew is called to be a disciple. And it's not narrated in the first person. In other words, Jesus, the author doesn't say, one day Jesus came up to my tax collecting booth and he said to me, you know, he doesn't narrate it, he narrates it in the third person. Why is he narrated in the third person? Because he's talking about somebody else. It's only later people who said, oh yeah, the person who wrote this thing is Matthew. Let me uh, wrap this up with just a few conclusions and then I will be happy to entertain any questions. This artwork is, um, is compelling on its own terms. Uh, the, this uh, exhibit here in the Getty is, uh, is, provides superb examples of medieval illuminated manuscripts uh, that is interesting uh, in artistic terms. It is also interesting because of what it tells us about what people were thinking through the Middle Ages, at least the artists who were producing this work, who I think in many ways were thinking about the stories of Jesus the way other medieval people were thinking who were not artistically gifted. The stories of Jesus were important because they told spiritual truths. It did not matter to these people that this actually happened or this actually didn't happen. They didn't think in those historiographic terms. There were stories being told about Jesus that were valuable as stories because the stories themselves conveyed spiritual truths. It did not matter to these people whether these stories were really in the Bible or not. They didn't have a clear sense of which books are in and which are out. You know, the educated people could have told you, but uneducated people, in other words, the vast majority of people in, in the medieval period and the early modern period, probably could not tell you which books are really in the New Testament. Uh, they had heard stories about Jesus, and the stories they heard were valuable in and of themselves, whether they were in the Bible or not. 
The stories were not necessarily to be taken literally and to be taken apart word for word in a kind of uh, careful exegesis of the passages. The stories conveyed spiritual truth that you could talk about. You could talk about these stories and learn from them. The art helped people think about these stories. They helped them reflect on these stories, and they helped them see the spiritual truths that they found in these stories. Thank you very much. I think there are two microphones that are available. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and we will uh, try to get a uh, microphone to you. Hi, I'm Mike McNamara. Uh, is the New Testament clear on uh, whether or not God and Mary were the parents of Jesus, or is sometimes Jesus thought of as the new Adam, and he's placed, I guess, in Mary's womb, and then Adam comes out, but Mary didn't really have anything to do with it other than carrying the child. Uh, does the, is the New Testament clear on that, or is it contradictory on that? Are, are you asking whether the New Testament uh, intimates that God in, performed a kind of sexual act with Mary? Uh, no, but uh, is, is Mary, does she furnish some of the, what we call, genes of Jesus? Yeah, right, right, or, right. Or, is, or is Jesus really yeah. a, a, new, a new man, a new Adam? Yes, right. Yeah, so the New Testament is not clear uh, on this. Uh, and unfortunately, again, there's not the artwork to help us out on it. Uh, but um, what the New Testament, there, there are only two passages that really talk about Mary uh, giving birth. There's the passage in Matthew and the passage in Luke. Matthew says nothing. All it says is the birth of Jesus was like this, and then you know Jesus gets born, so there's nothing. In Luke, however, there's the account of the Annunciation. Uh, and there's a very nice uh, picture, a nice artistic representation of the Annunciation in the exhibit here, uh, where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive. And she becomes uh, a little bit confused because she's never had sex. And so how is she going to conceive? And, uh, and Gabriel tells her how. And he, this is uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel Gabriel tells her, uh, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. The power of the Most High shall overshadow you, so that the one born of you shall be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, it looks like what he's saying is that the Spirit is going to make her pregnant. Uh, and it's using fairly graphic physical language. Uh, and so it's a little bit hard to know if that's what, what it means, but it, 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 that, may be, that may be what it means. How much of Mary uh, sort of was conveyed into Jesus? Was he, there were later heresies in the second century that said that Mary gave nothing to Jesus, that she came, he came through her like water through a tube, where the water doesn't pick up anything from the tube, it's just the conduit. So Mary was just the conduit. But that view was later declared uh, heresy because Mary did pass on uh, a human nature to Jesus, even though she did not pass along a sinful nature to, to Jesus. But that's a later thing. The, the New Testament. So I, what, what I could have done in answering your question is you asked, does the New Testament say anything about it? My answer could have been no. <laughs> You're welcome.
Hi, this is a, maybe a little bit off topic, but uh, I've seen portrayals of Jesus as Sol Invictus in Roman mosaics. Are you aware of any portrayal of Jesus in the Docetic tradition? Any portrayals of Jesus? So you're not asking about Sol Invictus, you're asking about the, the yeah, Docetic tradition? just how some of the heretical views yes, right. survived in art. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Uh, you know, it, uh, right, how, how would you portray a Docetic Jesus? I guess uh, maybe a blank, blank page, right? <laughs> he wouldn't be there, uh, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, Salvador Dali's last supper. Okay, yeah, sorry, sorry, we're doing inside talk. Uh, right, so, uh, right. When he's referring to a docetic view of Jesus, in the early church, there were debates about, who, there were debates, who is Jesus? I mean, is he a human? If he's human, is he also God? If he's God, how can he be human? And, and there were all sorts of variations about different people had different opinions. There were some people who said Jesus is a full flesh and blood human being, his parents were Mary and Joseph. They had sex. They had a baby. His name was Jesus. He was more righteous than anyone else, and he was chosen by God to be the Savior of the world. So he was a human. But if he's a human, he's not God because there's only one God. And if Jesus is God and God is God, you've got two gods. So you don't have two gods. You've got one God. And so, uh, and so there were people who said Jesus is human, but he's not God. There were other people who said Jesus is God, but he's not human. If he's God, he can't be human. I mean, you know, a, a human can't be God any more than a human can be a grape. I mean, they're different things. And so if you're God, you're not human. If you're human, you're not God. Well, then, if Jesus is God, why did he seem to be human? This is where the word docetic comes in. Docetic comes from a Greek word, uh, dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. There were early Christians who said that Jesus was God who only seemed to be human. He appeared to have flesh and blood, but he didn't really. It was a phantasm, and so he, he only seemed to be human. So uh, that's a docetic Christology. So both the view that he's completely human but not God and the view that he's completely God but not human, both of those lost out in the fights uh, about what to believe. And the, uh, the view that ended up winning out was a compromise position, which said, yes, he's fully human, and yes, he's fully God at the same time. And it's not that he's half human, and half God, he's fully human, and he's fully God. And uh, this ended up being declared a mystery. Uh, it's declared a mystery because if you can understand it, you misunderstand it. Uh, so, uh, so it's a mystery. Yeah. So uh, in answer to your question, I don't know, uh, yeah, until my friend Jeff Syker pointed out Salvador Dali's Last Supper, which is uh, Salvador Dali's best painting, by the way, uh, portrays Jesus as, uh, as something uh, as all, uh, you can see through him to the Sea of Galilee. It's really, it's a terrific painting. But I don't know anything in the history of Christianity that you could identify as a docetic portrayal. I know you said that uh, art is not your bailiwick, but in the birth of Mary, hanging over the bed, there looks to be a green punching bag. Yes. Any idea what that symbolizes? Yes, that's the medieval portrayal of a green punching bag. <laughs> Yes, uh, that is the uh, that is the that is that is the curtain. So she's in this bed stand with this bed frame around it. That's the curtain that's pulled up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I had exactly that question today. Uh, we, we went, I went through with Kristen, who is the art expert, and uh, I was asking her questions because I knew I'd get some questions I couldn't answer. And I said, what's that green punching bag? And uh, she said, oh, it's the curtain. So. Hi. Um, in the book of John, you quoted, it is finished. Yes. What are your thoughts on the argument that the original Greek is actually complete and not finished? And if so, does it matter? Um, the Greek word, uh, it's teleutai, te it's the Greek word, uh, the Greek verb teleo, teleao, teleao. Uh, it's where, let me see, English, you get our word teleology from, that, that probably doesn't help you much. Uh, so the, the word means both to finish something and to bring it to completion. And to say, so it is... The question is, I guess the question is, the theological one, is he, is he simply saying, you know, it's over with now, or is he saying that all the, all the prophecies now have been completed, have been fulfilled? And I think the Greek is ambiguous and can be interpreted both ways. It, it might mean both things. I understood that Roman law prescribed crucifixion only for treason. How did the two crucified thieves end up attached to Jesus when Roman law presumably didn't permit that? Uh, in Roman law, uh, there, for one thing, there was not any kind of, na it's a very good question, there, there was not any kind of national Roman law about crucifixion or about most things. Uh, Roman law was very good when it came to um, uh, civil affairs. So uh, there were laws about divorce and about inheritance and about uh, selling your land and about civil affairs. There were, there were very few laws about criminal affairs. Uh, criminal affairs were basically given over to whoever was ruling the province, outside of Rome itself, whoever was ruling the province. So the governor of a province was given pretty much free reign. Uh, the logic was that the Romans wanted the provinces, they wanted two things from the governors in the provinces. They wanted the governor to keep the peace, and they wanted the governor to raise taxes for Rome. And whatever it took to bring about those two things, pretty much they had free reign. And so provincial governors could have anybody crucified they wanted to. Uh, usually, you really couldn't, you weren't supposed to crucify a Roman citizen, so that was out. But uh, if you wanted to make a display of somebody, you know, you wanted to shame them publicly and you wanted to set an example, you could have them crucified. Normally, you're right, it was, it, it, normally it was reserved for issues of treason, but also it was reserved for the real lowlifes. Um, and so it was not uncommon, for example, for slaves to be crucified. We have numerous accounts of slaves being crucified because they were slaves. And so you crucify them. So these two, being, these two people being crucified with Jesus, we don't know what the charges were in their case. The charge of Je for Jesus was that he was called the king of the Jews. That's a political charge of sedition against the state. You're, you're claiming to be a king when only the Romans can appoint the king. So, I mean, it's a political charge. We don't know if the robbers, as they're called, were actually uh, just low-life robbers that they decided to, to string up. Or... The word robber that is used in the Gospel of John is a word that is used by the Jewish historian Josephus 
the, the, the word, leistes, is used by the Jewish historian Josephus to refer to Jewish guerrilla fighters. So people were engaged in guerrilla warfare. And so John is suggesting at least that possibly that these might be people who were, uh, were opposed to the government in some way. Would you talk about the idea that uh, probably the first stories told about Jesus were told in the Aramaic language, so that would be the first oral tradition? And then perhaps the idea that somewhere along the line, somebody who spoke Arabic, uh, Aramaic and who could write might have uh, initiated uh, manuscripts or scrolls that later somebody came along and translated into Greek. Yes. Yeah, I think that's, actually, that's absolutely right. The earliest stories about Jesus would have been told by his, his closest followers who spoke Aramaic, and eventually they got translated into into Greek. It, it, it creates some interesting situations in the Greek New Testament. Um, for one thing, I, I quoted this passage from Matthew, from Mark's Gospel, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and then Mark says, which translated means, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? When the, when, the, uh, when the Gospel of Mark was translated into Aramaic later, based on the Greek, uh, it's a little bit strange. Uh, it cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. <laughs> See what I mean? Because <laughs> it's put into Aramaic. Uh, the, the other interesting situation is that sometimes when the translation was made from Aramaic into Greek, something was lost in translation. And you can restore it by translating it back into Aramaic. So there are people who do this you know, on Saturday night when they've got nothing else to do. Uh, and uh, as, as an example, um, there's this famous line in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uh, is being upbraided for uh, what his disciples have done, uh, breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus tells his, uh, his interlocutors that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when you read that in Greek or English, it doesn't make any sense. Whereas I tell my students, when they run across a therefore, they should ask, what's the therefore therefore? <laughs> so in this case, Sab Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus be the Lord of the Sabbath just because Sabbath is made for humans and not, not the other way around? But if you translate it back into Aramaic, uh, the, the Greek word, Son of Man, in Aramaic is Barnashah. And so the, and the, the word for son of man is Barnashah. And so the original saying was, Sabbath was made for Barnashah, not Barnashah for the Sabbath. Therefore, Barnashah is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now it makes sense. You see, humans have priority over the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for them, not the other way around. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. That's, uh, it's one of the problems. You know, when you're reading something in the English words of Jesus, you're reading translations of the Greek, which are translations of the Aramaic, and something always is getting lost. Good evening. Thank you very much for your presentation. I'm sorry, where are you? I'm right up here. Yes. Uh, what about the, uh, in either the, the letter of First or Second Peter, it talks about Jesus preaching to those in prison, and how does that relate to your Gospel of Nicodemus and the yes. legends of how do you deal with what happened between Friday and 
Sunday. Yes, thank you. It's, uh, I actually had my Bible here with me uh, because I was going to quote that passage uh, from First Peter. It's First Peter, chapter three, verse nineteen. It's very. Is this mic still working? Did the mic just go off? Is it working? Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe I just went off. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's a very strange passage in First Peter that uh, biblical interpreters throw up their hands trying to figure out what it means. But but what it says is. Um, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. Uh, So it sounds like Jesus went in his spirit, but... He went to preach to the people from the days of Noah, who, who were destroyed when the flood came. So uh, biblical scholars you know, have a field day with this, because if you have no clue what it means, you can write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, after all, how you get tenure. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, right. But, so nobody knows what but. But this idea of, but you're absolutely right, this, this passage is, is the beginning of the idea. Maybe, certain, maybe Jesus went somewhere during those three days, and so he went to the spirits in prison, so maybe, and so that started the thinking at least. Yeah. I wanted before to the, ask. Before the next question, uh, from the back of the room, I'm just going to uh, give you some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that the next question will be the last one. The good news is Professor Ehrman has agreed to take a few minutes to sign books that you bought out front afterwards and we need your cooperation which is to say please after he answers the next question and we thank him one more time let him get out there Um, (laughs) and then the other piece of information is that we did tell him he gets to eat dinner tonight so um, we're gonna have to let him leave eventually so um, last question please thank you actually this is a good last question (laughs) given given that you are teaching in the Bible Belt and what you have just put on the screen in terms of legends and the historicity and all those problems, how does that go down with your students? <laughs> right. So, uh, well, I'm still living, so that's good. Uh, all right. So I know he wants this to be the last thing and wants me to hurry up. But I, I, I mean, okay, I want to tell a story. Uh, so, uh, so here's the deal. Uh, you know, my students, some of my students get upset. Some get their eyes opened up. Some, some you know, think that they are liberated, now they become crazy, you know, atheists or something, I don't know. I mean, some do that, but mainly most students actually just appreciate getting greater knowledge. For me, actually, the stranger thing is that in my 23 years at Chapel Hill, uh, teaching 300, 500 students a year, I have never gotten a complaint from a parent. And in fact, in all my time in Chapel Hill, I've only received one phone call from a parent. I mean, I've taught, so if I teach five, I probably have taught 400 a year for um, 23 years. And so I've, you know, I've taught 10,000 students. I've only got one phone call. So this was about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I'm sitting in my office. I've just posted my final grades. And I get a, a, a mother calls me. And I think, oh, here it goes. I'm going to get my first phone call complaining about a grade. Well, it was kind of that. She was complaining about a grade. Her daughter had taken my class and had gotten an F and had flunked out of school. 
Dr. Ehrman, I just wish that you could change my daughter's grade. I said, well, I, you know, I, I can't just change your daughter's grade because you'd like me to. I, Dr. Ehrman, I'm just praying to Jesus that you will change that grade. <laughs> I said, well, I, you know, I appreciate that, but you know, I really, there's nothing I, I can do. And, and I said, well, you know, give me your daughter's name again. She gave it to me. I said, well, let me go look. And I, I looked it up, and um, you know, I, I, I looked at the scores, and, and she had gotten a, uh, a 56 and the passing grade was a 60. And so I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I can't, I just can't add points because, you know, you would like me to. Well, Dr. Herman, I'm just praying that Jesus will change your mind about that. So, well, okay, you know, I, you know, I appreciate that, but I, I just can't hang up. So I started thinking, uh, is one of these large classes where um, I had several teaching assistants who had done the grading. And the, the guy who had been the teaching assistant for this particular woman uh, who had fit, oh, oh, I didn't tell you the important part. Yeah, here's the important part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the important, this woman tells me in the midst of this conversation that she works at a vegetable stand in western North Carolina on the side of a road, and she's been saving her money her entire life so her daughter could go to college. And since she's flunked my class, she's, she's been flunked out of college. And so I'm feeling terrible. I mean, you know, this, but you know, I can't just add four points. I mean, so what can I do? I mean, so I'm feeling bad. I, so I, I decide, well, I'm just, I'm going to look, you know, just look at this. So the thing was, the teaching assistant that this particular woman had is one of these guys who's really good in ancient history, but was never very good in math. And so I pulled out the grades, and I said, you know, I'm going to recrunch these numbers. I re-added them. He was off by four points. <laughs> absolutely true. This is not a legend. <laughs> this is absolutely true. He's off by four points. She, 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 she got, I called her up. I said, I don't know what kind of prayer life you got. <laughs> okay, I need to stop there. Thank you very much. <laughs>